the title of what I want to discuss is how will they believe? Paul asks this question and he answers it in Romans 10. How will they believe? And I think that across the spectrum of modern Christianity, we get this answer wrong. Paul says, how will they believe? And we say, well, they'll read the Bible. Or they'll hear about Jesus. Or who knows, they'll have a dream or something. And and, and it, it assumes that we can believe based on hearing about God. But that is not what the Scripture actually teaches. We cannot believe after hearing about God. We can only come to saving faith when we encounter God, when we encounter the living, numinous God in the Spirit. So let's start in, in uh, the familiar passage. You don't have to look it up, but it's uh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Many people try to turn this into a proof text for the Trinity, but as you've seen in the recent podcast that we've done on that, if you replace Word with Son and God with Father, then you realize that that Trinitarian interpretation doesn't work because it would read, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was the Father, and the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you understand? So if the Son was the Father, we, we, we kind of lose the Trinity right then and there. So what this refers to is God's creative agency, His Word. And often in Hebrew uh, and in Greek, pronouns are used for attributes or things that make them sound like persons, okay? Personal pronouns, Didi, you speak Hebrew, Batya, you do as well, Julie, you do as well. Isn't it true that the table is a he? Yes. But what about the Bible? Is it a he or a she? It's a he? Well, give me something in the room that's a she. The dress is a she? So you would say, this is my dress. She's very nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so most languages don't have what we call neuter pronouns, right? So they use personal pronouns to refer to inanimate objects. And scripture does the same thing when referring to attributes of God. So, for example, you look in Proverbs 8 and it says, Wisdom was at my side when I made the earth. He was a wise master craftsman at my right hand when I stretched out the heavens, right? But if you look at Isaiah 44, it says, I was alone when I made the earth. There was no God with me. I did it by myself. So, Isaiah 44 makes it clear that there was not another divine presence or entity who is sitting next to the Father. Rather, 
the wisdom or the creative agency of God's word was with him. Just like I came to this Bible study with a word, right? I came with a word about word, <laughs> right? And, and you come to a day with a joy, with a sorrow, with an expectation, with a disappointment. But it doesn't mean that that sorrow, word, expectation, joy, or disappointment are new persons. It simply means it is an agency or an aspect of your person, of you. We would even hear persons like this. So if um, Enoch and I work at the cafe, which we do, uh, he, he works there, but I work with him. Um, and if he comes to me and says, I want to, he wouldn't say this, but if he says to me, I've done the, the math, and if we start selling wine, we're going to make a killing. And I say, yeah, but I'm not going to do that. I don't feel comfortable with that. And he says, but think of it as a businessman. It would be reasonable for me to say, okay, I am. But the businessman in me is subject to the Christian in me. Do you understand? And by this, we do not infer two people, but again, two aspects of one person. And in, we even have a, a language of submission, where one aspect is in submission to another, right? So Paul poignantly says this statement that we would not use in modern language, modern vernacular, he says, no one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, but he has given us his spirit so that we can know this. So in this equation, Paul has one man and the spirit of the man is knowing the thoughts of the man. Now, you would think there's two centers of consciousness because you've got the spirit knowing the thoughts. And yet he's talking about one person. He says, the man. <laughs> there's not multiple people living inside of us. So when we speak in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, that is a direct reference to Proverbs 8. Wisdom was at my right hand. And it says Jesus became for us wisdom from God. So when God created the earth, there was only one entity. There was only one person. I don't like to use the term person, but one consciousness, one, one entity at creation. But he had among the arsenal of his many powers, his word was his greatest and nearest power. He says, Thy word, O Yahweh, is exalted even above thy name. So his, his word is how he acts. So in the beginning was the word. What, what is the beginning that he's referring to? When he spoke and said, Let there be light. And God used, just like you're more than your mouth, God is more than his word. 
you would still be a person if you lost your mouth, your voice, and your ability to speak. So that's not all there is to you. That's one important aspect of you, perhaps the most important. Would you agree? And in the same way, God, as a being, has many attributes, many facets to His nature, but His Word is seems to be one of His most important aspects. And when He speaks, then that is when He mobilizes His creative agency to create, to transform, to frame the worlds. Let there be light, and there was light. It wasn't another person saying that. It was God. It was Yahweh speaking that. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. So the Word, which was an aspect of God's nature, became a son. A son by nature has a birth. He has a starting point. If he didn't have a secondary starting point prior after God, then he wouldn't be called a son. He'd be called a father. The Word of God was always with God, but it did not become a sentient human or a sentient person in any sense until that Word became flesh. And the flesh of Christ referred to his sonship, and the Word, the Spirit that lived inside of him, referred to his divinity. Irenaeus said, The Son is that which is visible of the Father, and the Father is that which is invisible of the Son. Perfect. So Christ's sonness referred to his humanity, and his fatherness referred to his spirit. He never tells us that a divine son is living in him. He always says, the father who is living in me does the works. Okay? And so there is this sense in which we can say that he had glory with the father before the foundation of the world. But in what sense? Does that mean that Jesus was a creature, was an a sentient being talking to the Father before the foundation of the world? No. Revelations 13 says that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. But Hebrews tells us he was crucified only once. So when did the crucifixion occur? Did it occur in about 33 AD on the Sabbath night? Or did it occur before the foundation of the world? Well, in the mind of God, God can relate to ideas. Doesn't it say he calls those things that are not as though they were? Doesn't the Bible say, before I was born, you knew me and set me apart as an apostle or in the case of Jeremiah, as a prophet? This does not mean, and no Trinitarian will teach you that uh, Paul and and uh, Jeremiah were persons in eternity before they were born. <laughs> and yet God knew them in eternity. God knew each one of us, but not in some social relational way. He knew us as an unexpressed thought. But when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, that thought was expressed. And when that thought was expressed, a baby was born. 
and that was God's only Son. Okay? So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally means pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm merging John 1.1 to John 1.14, because there's a lot that he puts in there in between. Okay, so when Jesus is speaking in John 6, we'll summarize it, but he says something. He says, I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven. Whoever eats me will have life. I'm paraphrasing, okay? And then he says some things that really upset them. What does he say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It's upsetting. And they were upset. And a crowd of approximately 20,000 were following him. And they all up and left him. Right? How does he explain this statement? First, he asks them, will you go also? Right? But then how does he explain this statement, that he, this hard statement that made everybody leave? He says, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. He was choosing words that if you interpreted them naturally, you'd get a brain freeze. <laughs> <laughs> or you'd get offended and you'd get up and leave. Do you understand? You can't interpret that kind of language naturally. That's why he was choosing it. And he said, the words I speak to you are spirit. He's saying, I'm talking to you about realities in the spirit. Was this his burden in John 6, that they stop thinking naturally and start thinking spiritually? What's an important event that happened in the beginning of John 6, around 14, 15, verse 14, 15? What's an important event where they tried to see something happen? They tried to make him king. He performed the, the miracle of the loaves and fishes, and he said, you only follow me because of the loaves and fishes, right? So here's a problem. He doesn't like that they're only following him for the natural. But then they try to forcibly make him king. And so he is trying to say, you guys have natural expectations. I need you to start thinking spiritually. So he starts using language that you can't interpret naturally, and they all get offended. And he says, the words I speak to you are spirit. And after he's offended them, what does he say to them? He asks them, does this offend you? What we do when the Son of Man ascends. And, and you've got to ask, why would that offend anybody? We've talked about this before. Why would that offend anybody? He says, does this offend you, what I've said? What will you say when you see the Son of Man ascend to the Father? Well, if they're expecting an earthly kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like they just won the election and the president starts lifting off. It's like a very big offense. Where's he going? Do you understand? So they're gonna, they're, there's a risk that they'll be offended at the most important event in human history, the glorification of the Son of Man to the place of the Father. Okay? So he was trying to get him to think spiritually. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's look a little closer at this word thing. And I, I taught on this a couple uh, months ago. It may have even been this year. Whenever it was, uh, this is how we know. Um, let's look at John 5. Everybody go to John 5. Let's start in verse 18. 
Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. Amen. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Amen. Let's stop there. So you can tell, first of all, the Jews do not understand that he has created a new God or a new person to God. They understand that by calling himself God's son, he is making himself equal with the Father. And note also that he is not in sub the human son is not in subjection to a quote unquote divine son. Okay. The human son is in subjection to the father. So what role is the divine son playing here? Well, when we speak of the son, we don't speak of the divinity. When we speak of the father, we speak of the divinity. When we speak of the son, we speak of the humanity. Okay. But listen to this phrase, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to just look, focus on this last phrase. The whole thing is he's saying, you've got to treat the Son the same as the Father, okay? But look at verse 24, truly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This is actually a more remarkable statement than occurs to us. Okay? How does faith come? Okay. So, when he says, hear and believe, okay, we know that we're talking about that formula whereby we hear God and we believe. But listen to what he said, and, and, and tell me if, if this makes sense to you. If I said to you, Whoever hears my instruction and believes Enoch is correct really gets it. Does that make sense to you? No. What he's saying is, I want you to audibly hear a human expression, but believe it as an utterance of the Almighty. Whoever hears my word and believes him. Not that he sent me, just believes him who sent me. This isn't a sequential equation. This is a related causal equation. To hear his word is to receive a faith, a belief, an encounter, and a trust in the one who sent him. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So you could say that to have eternal life is to encounter 
the anointed word of God in human form and to believe and respond to it as if you had encountered the Father. Bear with me and I'll bear this out. Okay, everybody with me so far? We know the, the typical scriptures and we can breeze through them really quick. Let somebody get John 10, 20. Who has that? All right, John 10, 40. Luke 10, 16. Okay, uh, John 13, 20. 1 John 1, 1 through 2. Okay, and then uh, let's do... Um, We'll stop there and let's let's just go through those. Somebody read uh, Matthew ten twenty. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. Jesus is saying, "Don't freak out when you're put in tough situations." Why? For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I mean, this is a big statement to tell someone, it is not you who speak. <laughs> there is some capacity of ministry that we are invited to participate in where we can legitimately say, that is not me. I didn't say that. Now, if it's not a human speaking, but it is the Spirit of the Father speaking, how should we respond to that? Should we respond to it as words about God? Should we respond to it as opinions about God? Insights about God? No, when the Spirit is present, and it's not every time anybody opens their mouth to talk about the Bible, but when the Spirit is present, we should hear His Word and believe Him who sent Him. Do you understand? What does he say in John, when John 6, in that same chapter, he's, they asked him, how do we work the works of God? What did he say? Believe on him. He said, this is the work of God. Believe on him whom he has sent. <laughs> okay? And the word that he uses there, sent, is apostello. Okay, whoever has uh, Matthew 10, 40, go for it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Luke 10, 16. He who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. John 13, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Blair, 1 John 1, 1 through 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Okay, can I paraphrase for that? That which we once touched and looked at, we now declare. The word that became flesh in Jesus is the word that we are uttering unto salvation. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have gazed upon and touched with our own hands, this is the word of life, and this 
is the life that was revealed. We have seen it and testified to it, and now we proclaim it to you. The eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What is he declaring to them? He's declaring to them the word. But whoever hears my word and believes the one who sent me has eternal life. Do you see? If you can hear God's word through a human vessel and not feel that you have encountered God, you don't have that change. You don't have that power. You don't have what you need. But if you can hear God's word and believe him who sent that word, now you've passed out of the camp of the alienated from God and into the camp of the reconciled to God. Do you see it? Oh, wow. Okay, let's look at uh, Romans 10. And I know I've gone over this, but I really hope that we can see it afresh. Romans 10, verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 17. Okay, let me just frame this like, like this. Romans 9 begins with Paul bewailing that the Jews are separated from salvation. In Romans 8, he's just said, nothing can separate us, right? Because we have it. In Romans 9, he says, I could wish myself accursed. I am under great stress and duress and sorrow, unceasing sorrow and grief, because my brethren are separated from Christ. Amen? Jews according to the flesh. Romans 10, he picks up the same thought. Much of Romans 9 is simply a parenthetical, and now he resumes his thought in Romans 10. But Romans 9 has created a problem. He is saying that Jesus is the only way to have salvation. But if you were a Jew in 70 AD and you heard Paul say that, your inclination would be to say, okay, but he's gone now. We can't go up into heaven to get him. And there's no sense going into the grave to get him either. That's the abyss. What shall we say? Do you understand? So Paul's point in Romans 10 is to tell people you can still meet Jesus. You can still encounter Jesus and come to saving faith. And he doesn't tell them by opening your Bibles and reciting a sinner's prayer. He's going to show them that it's much more experiential than that. Okay? Follow. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But... The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And Paul begins to quote what faith should sound like coming from your heart. And the first thing it's going to tell you is stop looking in the wrong place. The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? 
So then he says, he, he picks up his own voice and then he says, but what does the righteousness of faith say to you? It says, quote, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith that we are preaching. So in this equation, the dilemma that he is solving is how do I connect with Christ? Would you agree with that? Do I go into heaven to get him? Do I dig down into the abyss to find him? How do I meet Christ? And what solves the quest for Christ? What solves it? The Word. So the Word is Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Don't say who will ascend to get Christ, because the Word is near you. And what is the Word that he's using here? Is it Logos? No, it's Rhema. Okay? Logos has many meaningful meanings, but the word he's using is rhema, which means anointed utterance. Okay? Are you with me so far? Okay. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is from the prophet Joel when he prophesied the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter has quoted this exact same phrase in the second chapter of Acts when he explained what speaking in tongues was. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But he does not end his statement there. Look at verse 14. He, he recognizes the difficulty or the problem with calling on the name of the Lord. Now, we know there's a wrong way to call on the name of the Lord, right? Because what does Luke 6 tell us? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. So that's not the kind of calling that we need here, okay? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That doesn't work, okay? But what is the kind of calling? In, in 14, he shows us, remember, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Helped? Saved. This is a salvific concept that Paul is solving. This is a salvific question. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? So he says, you can't call on, you can't pray the way you need to pray until you believe. Isn't that what he says in Hebrews? Those who come to God must what? You got to believe that he is. You have to have some belief in his reality. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, right? So he says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now I'm reading from the New American Standard 1995 update. And that is the correct rendering of this in the Greek. And your Bible may even put a footnote. If you're reading the English Standard, I need to make a point. It does not say, how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard. It says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? So if I have heard of God, 
Somebody has passed on words about him. But if I have heard God, I have encountered him through the Spirit. Do you see the difference? So he does not say, how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? This is the correct translation. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Okay? So you cannot have saving faith until you have encountered God. You've got to hear him before you can believe him in a saving way. Do you understand? Now, there are many ways that he speaks. I don't deny that. And I believe people can can come to saving faith whenever they hear his voice. But they're not going to come by hearing about him. They're not going to come simply by reading scripture. Now, God, through the Spirit, may pull those words off the page and begin to anoint them and pound them into the heart. And now they can have saving faith. But as long as it's mere didactic study, it's not going to produce the saving faith that he's going on. Okay, have you forgotten what the dilemma was? What was the dilemma to begin with? How do we, how do we meet with Christ? Because he's already, he's already gone, right? Let's, let's keep going. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So he's suggesting that at least the pattern, at least the rule is you're not going to hear God except through anointed proclamation from the church. (laughs) How will they hear? Now, we would simply answer, read a track, study their Bible, turn on the television. But that's not what he says. He says, how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? That's the word apostello. Again, this is the work of God to believe on him whom he has sent, apostello. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel or good news of good things. 16, however, they did not all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And in this, he shows that belief and obedience are the same thing. He's using them interchangeably, right? And then he concludes with verse 17. So, here is the summation of his entire point. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by what? It says the word of Christ. So how does this sum up his statement? He's just said that you don't need to look into heaven. You don't need to look into the abyss because the word we're preaching is right near you. And then he says, you can't believe until you hear, but you got to hear him. And then he says, but you're going to hear him through a preacher. And then he says, so faith comes from hearing the word of the preacher. But that's what he's just said. He's saying that Christ is a present reality in the word of the preacher. Do you understand? (laughs) It says the first Adam became a living soul. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It says, we have received the spirit of sonship. When we move under the anointing of the spirit, that is a legitimate meeting with Jesus. It's the only proscribed way for someone to come to saving faith. It is not a mental acceptance about what he did. It is an encounter with who he still is. 
that says that which our eyes have seen and our hands have handled, that which we testify to, it's still with us. We are still declaring and proclaiming the word of life. <laughs> and if you can hear that word from the body and believe him, then you've passed out of the disconnect of being lost where you don't hear the father and into the camp of the saved <laughs> where the word is near you, nigh unto you in your mouth and in your heart. Okay. Let's look at a couple parallels here. In John 8, 47, Jesus says, whoever belongs to God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Okay? How does one belong to God? By yielding oneself over and losing possession of oneself. What are some of the scriptures that tell us that we belong to God? It says those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Does that indicate to us that the old owner was the flesh? Does that indicate to us that we can't belong to the new owner, Christ, until we crucify the old owner? And what are some other belonging scriptures? He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive for righteousness. If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Him. So we belong to God when we let His Spirit adopt us and own us and claim us and possess us. Like if you said that man is possessed. <laughs> but we need to be possessed by the Spirit. But the Spirit can't possess us until we crucify the old master of the flesh who is currently owning us. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. And so Paul told us, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So until you crucify the flesh and yield over your life to a certain level of, God, I'm not in control, you can't hear the Word of God. Control and ownership over your life prevents you from hearing the Word of God. Can we listen to it again? Whoever belongs to God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So we could translate that and say the reason you don't hear is because your old owner is filling your head with its thoughts. You haven't surrendered. You haven't yielded yourself over. You haven't crucified the flesh and you haven't received the Spirit. So you don't belong to God. Now look at John, 1 John 4, 5-6. through 6. This was John 8, 47. And this is the parallel in John's epistle. He says, they are of the world. That is why they speak from the world's perspective and the world listens to them. Now one translation says they belong to the world. <laughs> they are owned by that system. That is their governor. That is their God. That is their owner, okay? And they speak from the world's perspective and the world listens to them. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God or does not belong to God does not listen to us 
This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And he's already told us that the spirit of error is the spirit of what? The Antichrist. The ability to, to believe that Christ is in the church, that God is in the church, is how we escape the independence, the Antichrist spirit that says only I can know his will for my life. <clears throat> okay, so let me ask you a couple questions. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians, do not speak in tongues when an unbeliever is present, he's describing someone from the world who hasn't yet come to saving faith. Would you agree? Okay. And <clears throat> what does he say we should do instead? Prophesy. And what did he say would happen? And then what did he say would happen? So he says, when an unbeliever comes, don't speak in tongues, prophesy, and the result is they're going to fall on their face and say, I believe Jesus died for my sins 2,000 years ago. No, he's an unbeliever, but what they're going to acknowledge is they're going to know that God is among you. <laughs> Do you understand? This is an encounter, and this is where they can stop being an unbeliever. This is where faith can come by hearing the word of God. Not words about God, but the word of God. Okay? 1 Thessalonians uh, 2.13 We continually thank God because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as the true word of God the word which is now at work in you who believe. They came to saving faith because they encountered the word of God. Remember what our title was when we started? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? They will not believe in him until they hear him. And they will not hear him except through the church. Believers must fall on their face and know that God, the, the spirit of the father is here. They need to say, that was not you speaking. That was the Father, the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Do you get it? Galatians 4.14 And although my illness was a trial to you, you did not despise or reject me. Instead, you received me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus Himself. Whoever receives you, receives me. This was not some strange thing that the Galatians outgrew. This was the fulfillment of the promise. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you and greater works than these shall you do. Because I live, you will live also. Amen. So we've cut or covered a lot of bases, but can I just kind of package it all back together? Jesus wanted people to hear his human voice and know they had encountered the Almighty and come to a faith that the Almighty was real and that they could believe him through his vessel on earth. But we have the same mandate. People do not come to saving faith. They cannot call on God unto salvation until they have an encounter with God. They've got to hear God, not hear words about him, but hear him. They got to say, I heard God tonight. 
And what kind of hearing is it? I think I heard God tonight. I don't know. No, it's fall on your face. Why would somebody fall on their face? Because God is real. He's among you of a truth. When you go into a setting and brothers and sisters begin to speak and the secrets of your heart are being revealed, you should fall on your face and say, God heard me. God's real. He knew my struggle. He knew my prayer. He answered me. And that's how you come to a saving faith. And that encounter says, okay, I can pray to that which I in, I met last night. Do you, see, do you see what I'm saying? I met the Lord in that meeting. Not I heard about him. Not somebody explained him for the first time. Much teaching and explanation is required, but that's not what brings saving faith. Meeting God through the Spirit and the Spirit through the Word is what's going to inspire saving faith. And then you can call upon Him whom you have heard.